around Christians, you've probably heard of the idea of having a personal relationship with God, which could mean different things in the Bible, like having God as a friend, or your father, or maybe your teacher. But there's one particular way that the Bible talks about this relationship that you find all over. But strangely, we don't talk about it that much. And that's the idea of a partnership with God. A partnership like working alongside someone to accomplish a goal together. Right. And this is actually what you see at the beginning of the Bible. God creates this good world full of all of this potential. And then God appoints these unique creatures, humans, as his partners in bringing more and more goodness out of all that potential. But the humans don't want to partner with God. They rebel and try to create a world on their own terms. And so this broken partnership is the Bible's explanation for why we're stuck in a world of corruption and injustice and the tragedy of death. It's not like there's just one or two humans who have bailed on this relationship. In the story of the Bible, everyone has abandoned the partnership with God. So what God does is select a smaller group of people out of the many. And he makes a new partnership with them called a covenant. And in a covenant, God makes promises, and then in exchange asks his partner to fulfill certain commitments. And the purpose of all of this is to somehow use this covenant relationship to renew his partnership with everybody else. Now, there are actually four times in the Old Testament that we're told God initiates a covenant relationship with Noah, Abraham, the nation of Israel, and King David. And it's through these that God is forming a covenant family into which all people will eventually be invited. So let's see how these work. The first one is with Noah. So in this story, God has just brought the flood to cleanse the world of humanity's corruption. And Noah and his family are the only ones left. And so God makes a covenant with Noah saying, listen, I know that humans will continue to be evil, but despite that, I'm not going to destroy it like this again. Instead, the earth will be this reliable place for us to work together. Great. So what does Noah have to do? Nothing. And that's what's so interesting about this first covenant is that God is promising to be faithful, even though he knows humans won't be. Very good. Uh, That video is from a resource called The Bible Project, which I encourage anyone to go and check out on your own uh, because it's fantastic. Well, good morning, church. How's everyone doing today? Good, good, good. Great to see you all. Welcome all you new guests. Uh, My name is Ben, and I serve as the assistant pastor here at Radiant Church. The other day, I was cleaning up some of my documents that I've had for over a decade now on my computer, and I stumbled across the script that the pastor used to perform my wedding. And I, uh, you know, I have a natural curiosity because I perform weddings myself, and I opened it up, and I read through the words that were spoken over me and my wife over 10 years ago, and it was really cool to, to witness that. Um, but then it came across to the time where I, I, I found my vows and the words that I had spoken, the promises I had spoken to my wife that day. Um, here's a picture of us on our wedding day. Uh, this was 10 years ago in Lawrence, Kansas. Everyone said, aww, it's so cute. We were praying with one another at that time, and it's been wedding bliss ever since, right, babe? Yeah, woo, she said yes for the record. You couldn't hear the mic, but she said yes uh, for the live stream. Uh, (laughs) But anyway, I came across the vows, and I was reading over them, and it kind of struck me. I was like, I don't don't remember saying these words at all, (laughs) you know? I was like, to cleave and to do what now, you know? And I was rereading them fresh, and I was like, I know I said them, but I had no idea exactly the words that I used. As a matter of fact, we even wrote our own vows to one another and recited them to one another, our own promises. And I couldn't tell you at all what I said, okay? I would have to go back. I, I got to dig those out, and maybe we'll, maybe we'll read them to each other tonight or something. Sound good? Anyway, 
it was interesting because, uh, because, well, first of all, wedding vows, the tradition of speaking uh, vows or promises to one another has been going on since the beginning of man, actually. In Genesis, uh, we see that Adam speaks words to Eve. He says, this is now bone of my bone and what? Flesh of my flesh is some of the first, first vows, covenant language there in the very beginning. What's interesting is that I spoke the promises and they're still in effect to this day, right? We still are under the vows that were spoken at this time, even though we, we really don't think about it in those terms that much very often, right? And I think the same is also true with, with God's promises that he has spoken to us. How many of us, uh, you know, day to day think about the covenantal promises that God has spoken through scripture to us? Many of us maybe are like, I don't even know what covenantal promises you're talking about, right? But if you've grown up in church at all, you've likely at least heard the word covenant. God has spoken vows to us for the sake of relationship. So today, we're kicking off a brand new Christmas series. Woo! Christmas, yeah. Some of you are got your tree up and all that, but it's called Promises Made and Promises Kept. That's the idea that God, throughout time, has made promises to humanity and to his children, and then he has kept those promises. We're going to be kicking off by focusing in the next five weeks on the five human divine covenants, the big ones uh, in, in Scripture. So here they are listed, for instance. <clears throat> First is the Noahic covenant, which we're going to be discussing today. Then there's the Abrahamic covenant, Mosaic Davidic, and then finally we're going to be discussing the new covenant. These are the five we're going to be focusing on. There's no consensus as far as how many covenants there are in Scripture, but these are what we're going to be zeroing in on. What is a covenant? I want to give you this definition, which I thought was succinct succinct by Gordon Hugenberger. Probably mispronounced that. And he writes it this way. Great definition. He writes, a covenant is an elective as opposed to a natural family-like relationship of obligation established under divine sanction. You guys got that memorized. You can repeat that back, right? Layman's terms, what does that mean, okay? So covenant, it's elective, right? You choose to enter into it oftentimes. And as opposed to a natural type of a relationship, like a family, or as opposed to like a blood uh, familial type of relationship. This is, this is a relationship that goes beyond that. So there's a relational aspect to the covenants, okay? But it's a relationship of obligation. Again, think back to wedding vows, a wedding covenant, right? We're, we're speaking promises, and then we enter into a new kind of relationship, not of blood, but of something else, right? And then there are certain obligations, there are restrictions, and it's established under divine sanction, meaning if this, if this doesn't get accomplished, if we somehow break the obligations, there's going to be consequences, okay? So in other words, a covenant is entering into a relationship with obligations and, and uh, consequences if those obligations get broken. Does that kind of make sense? So good, so far, so good. Excellent. Again, think about a marriage. There's key similarities that scholars have found even with other ancient Near Eastern uh, contracts and things like that. We see this throughout Scripture. Uh, here's, here they are listed. For instance, usually there's two parties, uh, one being a divine witness. Oftentimes there's a historical prologue or an explanation of past benefactions. What does that mean? It's when God says, I am the Lord your God and I brought you out of Egypt. He's sharing the history of the relationship and he's talking about his benefactions, the, the benefits that God has given. 
It usually includes stipulations. You shall have no other gods before me. They also include sanctions. If you don't follow these obligations, bad things happen. Exile, for instance. And then finally, there's usually a ratifying oath or there's an oath sign. What does that mean? A ratifying oath would be an oath would be spoken as if like wedding vows, for instance. A wedding is interesting or a marriage is interesting because it's a two-part covenant. There's both ratifying oath that is spoken through vows, but then there's also a ratifying oath sign. There's a symbol. What is that symbol in marriage? It's sexual intercourse. The union of two flesh becoming one is a, is a oath sign. And every time you are intimate with your spouse in the context of marriage, we are renewing the covenantal vows. Maybe you've never thought about it that way. That's okay. Now you can. Okay, moving on. The first time we ever see the word covenant, though, is found in the story of Noah, which begins around Genesis chapter 6, the story of Noah. Everyone has heard of the story of Noah and the ark, right? It is by far the most terrifying children's story of all time, okay? Matter of fact, it's not a children's story at all. So we're going to be in Genesis chapter 6. If you want to turn there in in your Bibles or on your phones, uh, feel free to do that now. Genesis chapter 6, then we'll jump over to 9. The story spans three chapters, so there's no way we'll cover it all, but we'll hit the highlights since most of us are familiar. Genesis chapter 6, beginning with verse 5, it says this. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Wow, okay? So during this time, during Noah's uh, season of life, humanity had devolved into violent, chaotic, uh, misogynistic, just nasty, nasty people, so far to the point that it says every inclination and thought of the human heart was evil all the time. As in, it's, it's bad out there, okay? And so what we see is it's devolved from this, this sort of spiraling effect where it was once we were partners with the loving God who created us out of union and goodness as image bearers and co-rulers, and we had an opportunity to partner with God. The human race took that choice, took that agency and free will, and it absolutely perverted it into all kinds of chaos and evil. Here's what happens next. This is the heartbreaking part of the story. Verse 6. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. Scripture says his heart was deeply troubled. 7. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret that I have made them. Eight, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Again, jump to 17. 17 says, I am going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. Drastic, drastic move by God here. We see in this story that things had become so corrupt and violent that all the people of the earth had been corrupted in, in all of their ways. And God said, I regret it. I'm wiping it out. I'm starting fresh. 
really difficult, really difficult passage of Scripture for us to wrestle with here today. Now, you, you contrast this, you contrast this to other flood mythologies, for instance, and they also tell of a global or a, a massive flood that took place, but the reason that the, the deities and these other uh, mythologies flooded the earth was because uh, human beings were too noisy, and the gods got annoyed, and so they just flooded everyone, right? Not quite as believable as everyone was corrupted in all of their ways, and so something must be done, but here we are. And so I want us to just kind of capture something really quick, and that is that the heart of God was deeply troubled by this. Kinda, we kind of miss that point sometimes. Let me rephrase it in another way. God cared enough to have his heart deeply troubled by this. And so what this communicates is it communicates a necessary heartbreak that God was experiencing with his creation that he had created in its genesis to be good. What we see here is a God who's not disconnected from his creation, not uncaring from his creation, but we see a relational God grieving over what has taken place through the free will of mankind. Heartbreaking story, Genesis 6, 18. But, here's the glimmer of hope, but God says, I will establish my covenant. Here's the word. My covenant with you, and you will enter the ark. You and your family and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives will be with you, God says. So God gives this man, Noah, instructions for the ark. He gets specific about that. He gives instructions to preserve uh, seven clean animals and birds, seven pairs, I mean, and then he, uh, one pair of all the other animals. And then what happens? The rain comes the floods rise. Noah and his family, it uh, says that God shut them into the ark. So picture this moment where Noah and his family, the ark has finally been built. God has shut them in. I imagine there's darkness, and all you hear is this catastrophic rain coming. There's darkness. There's likely fear. And then scripture says that as it was shut, it says, as the waters increased, they lifted the ark. So rather than sinking into death, Noah's family was raised to life in the ark. Don't miss the symbolism there. This raises, this story, of course, with the destruction of the earth and all living creatures, et cetera, raises all sorts of questions for us, right, in our modern, uh, modern kind of view of the world, right? For instance, there's all sorts of questions about was this a global flood or was this a local flood? Uh, many ask the question, can it still be a universal flood, even if it isn't a global flood, for instance? Um, many, many have all sorts of questions and seek to find evidences for this actually taking place. And uh, I believe there are some evidences that we can look at. For instance, uh, many point to the fact that there's marine fossil life on the top of mountain ranges. Okay? Uh, maybe a young earth creationist would say that's evidence as a, of a global flood. Uh, maybe an evolutionist would say, no, that's after millions, millions of years of mountain ranges slowly emerging out of the sea. Okay, whichever, wherever you land on all that, the point is, at least at some point, we agreed that the mountains were underwater at some point, enough to have marine life on mountain ranges. Uh, another possible evidence people look to is the fact that there's multiple mythologies re accounting for a global or a catastrophic flood. Of course, they attribute to all sorts of different reasons and methods and why that actually happened, and they, they uh, vary differently in di different ways all over, all over the world. The point, though, is that they all account for some sort of catastrophic, catastrophic something that happened. And the game of telephone preserved and from there. My point is this. My point is this. Serious scholars and people have, have attempted and continue to research in order to take this text 
seriously and authoritative, which I think is good. And yet they've arrived at different conclusions in their findings, and that's okay. And the reason it's okay is because I don't believe that this story in Genesis chapter 6 through 8 is attempting to be a scientific how-to to survive a catac cataclysmic flood, right? Like, the logistics and all of that, it's okay to have some question marks with some of that. Now, we can take God at his word in Scripture, and it is authoritative. And I think we need to remember that. And we also need to remember the fact that if God, if, God, uh, if we believe that God can um, let someone know in advance that unprecedented floodwaters are coming, he can do just about anything. Like, there is just a necessary leap of faith that needs to happen with this. Does that make sense? It's, it's just inevitable, okay? So I, I share all that to say it's that the intention of the story is not a, a scientific how-to, and it certainly is not a children's story, <laughs> you know, spoken over kids before bedtime, right? So then the question is, what is it then? What is it? First and foremost, this story is about necessary divine judgment against evil. Let me say that again. Necessary divine judgment against evil. The story says that every thought of humanity was evil all the time. And I think if, if we were to experience that here and now, let's say in our country, that like everyone you interacted with, all of their thoughts were evil and corrupt and violent all the time, and there was this, this devolving spiral of hate and injustice happening, I think no matter what your worldview, whether it's godly or not, all of us would agree that something ought to be done about that level of evil, correct? We would all agree like something has to be done if it's truly that bad. And God does something about that. You see, evil, church, we know this if you observe the world at all, evil doesn't just simply go away. Something needs to be done about it. Evil lurks, it metastasizes. Evil tries to corrupt the hearts of everyone. Evil bides it time, its time in the darkness and then it chooses to regrow, if not dealt with. Every respectable worldview, every respectable worldview, whether it involves God or not, has to deal with the problem of evil in this world. I just happen to believe that scripture actually has one of the most thorough outlooks and thorough explanations of why evil exists and what to do about it. You may arrive at a different conclusion, but every, every reasonable worldview has to deal with the problem of the evil we see in this world. And the reality is this, everyone in this room, we only see a glimpse of the amount of evil that happens in this world. We only see a tiny fraction. And we, we aren't even able to see all the inclinations and the thoughts in people's heart and mind. If you were able to see a glimpse into my heart and mind when I am not having godly thoughts, it would strike you, right? You'd be like, what in the world? Why is he so judgmental? Why is he so prideful? Why, right? We only get a tiny glimpse in the amount of chaos and evil that, that reside in the hearts of men in our world today. Let me just give you a couple examples real quick. I don't want to linger here. Just recently, I heard a, a young kid in elementary tell me about how his school had to take action um, because of racist comments he was receiving, and he told me what was said, and it was just truly awful. Just recently, I heard a story about a daughter who was um, sold into sex trafficking by her father who was involved in that and then forced to do occult practices. I, I learned recently this... Uh, recently that the porn industry has reached $100 billion in revenue in the year 2022. $100 billion in revenue. 
And then I, I also recently learned that um, there's conflict in Manipur, India, between uh, Hindu extremists and Christians. 300 churches were burned to the ground, and 4,000 Christian homes in Manipur were destroyed. Each of those stories I learned about this week. This week. It, it's, it's, the it's a tiny glimpse of the evil that's actually being perpetuated in our world today. We only see in part, we only see a glimpse of the evil that resides on the hearts of man. God sees it all. Can you imagine the emotional burden and weight of seeing all the evil that resides in the hearts and minds of men at all times? And this is post-Jesus, right? Can you imagine what it must have been like? in the days of Noah. So how could a loving God, you know, pour out judgment? How can we explain the colossal loss of life in the story of Noah? I don't want to provide oversimplified answers today, but one explanation is, is quite simple, and it's this. It's that God is just. We believe in a God who is perfectly just dedicated to justice at all costs. Let me put it this way. A just world requires that evil be dealt with, right? It requires it. Proverbs 21 verse 15 puts it this way. When justice is done, it brings joy to the righteous, but terror to evildoers. Isaiah 61, 88, for, this is what God said. He says, for I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. You see, church, we, we can never miss this point. I know this story is difficult. I know it, it's a lot to wrestle with. with but we need to remember Righteous judgment towards the guilty is an act of mercy towards the innocent, right? When, when, we see, when we see righteous judgment towards evildoers, towards the guilty, it's an act of mercy towards those who are seeking goodness and innocence in our world. But who gets to decide, right? That's the question. Who gets to decide who, who's actually evil and who's good? What, who could bear that weight? There's only one who can. It's an almighty holy God. Our systems of justice fail all the time. We see it every single day. They're perverted. They're corrupt. They, they miss the mark. They get it wrong, right? We, we need to believe in a God of perfect justice who will make all things right one day. And in this story, God had seen that there was one who hadn't succumbed to this level of corruption, and his name was Noah. And Noah had a blind sort of faith and obedience and faith in what was unseen. And he chose to take action in it. And so what we see in the story of Noah is also that God would preserve what was good. God would choose to preserve the little glimpse of what was good, and he restarts his rescue mission to humanity. Look, guys, I get it. There is no easy way around this story, the story of Noah's Ark. Noah's story should alarm us and unsettle us. It ought to, right? 
why, there was a story of a, a famous church father, Anselm of Canterbury, and he was discussing the incarnation of Christ. And this person he was talking with just couldn't grasp, couldn't grasp the idea that God in his love would send his son Jesus only so that he could die for humanity. And his question was, why would, why would Jesus have to die, though, in order to save humanity? And Anselm's reply is famous. Anselm writes this, you have not yet considered the greatness of the weight of sin. This, this sermon was hard. And the reason it was hard is because I was forced to consider the greatness of the weight of sin. It's ugly. It's hard. It's, it bears a load on each and every one of us. We feel it day in and day out. So the story of Noah is not meant to, um, not meant to be a sort of like lullaby that you know, puts us back into sleep. It is meant to alarm us and awaken us. When air raid sirens would go off over Europe during World War II, there was a reason for that. It was loud, it was unsettling, and it was to warn individuals to take cover because the bombs were about to drop. When, when you hear a tornado siren, it's not meant to, you know, you're not meant to hear a tornado siren and then be like, oh, everything's fine, I'm going to go back to sleep, right? It's jarring. It is annoying. It is in your face. You cannot ignore a tornado siren. Why? Because it's meant to unsell you into action, into changing, into saying, hey, the, the, the funnel clouds are forming. The tornado is headed your way. Do something or perish. That's the story of Noah. It's not meant to settle, settle well with us. So if you're here and you're struggling with that, you're like, what in the world is this story and a loving God doing what? Yeah, yeah, it's hard. It's a brutal story. Why? Well, Ecclesiastes 12, 14, for God will bring every deed into judgment. Wow. Including every hidden thing, whether it's good or evil. Wow. Why? Because justice requires this kind of judgment. Perfect justice requires this kind of judgment. We don't like that. That is a hard reality, but it's true. So anyway, I just am here up here today to, to wish you a Merry Christmas. Welcome to our Christmas series. You guys get your tree up yet? Get your lights up? Cool. Yeah, just a light, light little topic for us this morning. First and foremost, the story of Noah is about divine judgment against evil. But don't miss the fact that the story of Noah is also about a God who in his righteous love is not giving up on the goodness of creation but rather he is making a covenant to humanity and a covenant to the good created order of things. He is still going to bring forth renewal and salvation through the systems and humanity that he has created. Genesis 9, 8 through 11, what is this covenant? The covenant is described here, verse 8. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, I will now establish my covenant with you. Remember, relationship with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you. The birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on the earth, I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all the life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. Skip to 17. So God said to Noah, this is a sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on earth earth. The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. 
What we need to see here is that the story of Noah through this covenant is that God is communicating a new relational bond with his creation and humanity. In other words, God wasn't giving up. God wasn't giving up. And what we see here is his love towards creation through his righteous judgment. Let me say that again. We see his loving compassion through his righteous judgment. You say, how is that possible? Well, the truth of the matter is Psalm 33 puts it this way. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. And the earth is full of his unfailing love. The two require the other. Let me put it this way. Proper justice must be married to righteous love. Let me give you an example. There are many in today's society that, that are all about justice, all about seeking justice and, and social justice and things like that, right? And I'm, there's nothing wrong with a lot of that. I'm all for seeking the good of all humanity, right? But oftentimes these, these, these efforts leave behind righteousness, leave behind what's really good, the, the commands of God and his thing. And on the flip side, there are many ideologies out there who, who claim to have the righteousness of God and yet do nothing to seek justice and help the betterment of people around us. The two must be married into one. You cannot have justice without righteousness. You can't have righteousness without justice. Do you hear that? I love this quote from uh, J.R.R. Tolkien. He is a hero of mine. This is a man who lived through the hellscape of World War I and saw firsthand what true evil actually looked like, something many of us have never seen before. Okay? And this is what he writes about warfare and, and such in Two Towers. Brilliant language. He writes, I do not love the bright sword for its sharpness, nor the arrow for its swiftness, nor the warrior for his glory. I love only that which they defend. It's not about the judgment. We don't love the judgment. We don't love the necessary times of evil being destroyed. That, that is not what we love. We love only that which they defend. The innocence and the purity and the love and the glimmers of hope and the justice. That is what we love to defend. That is what we're after. And I think the same is true with God Almighty. You see, God still had a rescue plan in place from Noah and his son Shem. On and on and on, branches of goodness would come forward, eventually leading to the Messiah. Jesus Christ would be born in a manger, coming as a baby, and he would eventually live and minister, ushering in the kingdom. And then Jesus Christ would be crucified for us on a cross. As we begin to land the plane, 1 Peter 3 puts it this way. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. That's us. We're the unrighteous. To bring you to God. Do you hear the relationship in that? Why did Christ have to die? To bring us back to God. The relational element here, the covenant. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedienced long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah. Did you catch that? Waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. 21, don't miss this. And this water 
symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Let me put it this way, church. Through Christ Jesus, Christ lifts us out of the waters of judgment. And he is our only lifeboat. Christ is how we as the church, how we do not drown in the waters of judgment and death. It's through Christ and what he did on the cross that we, as as his people, are able to pass through our Red Sea from slavery of death into a newfound slavery and freedom and righteousness. It is because of Christ that we can pass through the waters of the Jordan River out of the testing in the wilderness and into his redemptive promise of heaven. It's through Christ that when we go down into death, down into the waters of baptism, it is only by his power that we can then once again be lifted out, resurrected into new life. It was only through the power of Christ when Peter was in the water crying out, Lord, Lord, save me, that Jesus was willing to reach down, grab him, and pull him out of the waters of death. This is what Jesus did for us on the cross. And this is why he had to come at Christmas time. Through him and the covenant that was made to Noah long ago, we escape judgment. The story of Noah is about the enormous cost of God creating us with free will and agency and the risk of us not choosing him back. The story of Noah is about the enormous price to rescue us from judgment, which was Jesus Christ on the cross. Isaiah 53 reminds us that but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So just as much as the story of Noah is a story about God's justice done against evil. It's a story of how God is preserving what is good in his righteous love. All the goodness, church, that we have ever experienced in this life, all the goodness and grace that we've experienced on our wedding days or the birth of our children or good friends around table, all of the, the beauty we've seen in sunsets and the love that has been shared among us, all was possible because God did not give up on what was good. That's the story of Noah. Small seeds of goodness planted and giving life in fertile soil to spring forth and branch out till the, the end of the age. In other words, God hasn't given up. Let me say that one more time. God hasn't given up. God hasn't given up on making something good from bad. 
God hasn't given up on completing what he started. God hasn't given up on his commitment to absolute justice, but he also hasn't given up on his commitment to absolute love for you and for me. For us here today, church, we like Noah, like Noah, God has lifted us out of the waters. We haven't perished in judgment, but rather we can have new life in him. God hasn't given up on us. Whatever your circumstances, whatever wrong you've done, whatever evil intentions of your heart and mind, the Lord knows I have them myself. I just need to remind you that, that God hasn't given up. He's provided a way for you. Out of the judgment, out of what, what wrath our debts have incurred, he, he, he's given, he hasn't given up. He's still at work. He's still bringing good things out of the evil. So may we as image bearers and partners with our Heavenly Father, then church, may we too do all we can to seek justice while preserving what is good. May we endure as a remnant in the face of evil. And may we with all gratitude that we have been given give thanks to God for this promise that's been made and this promise that's been kept. We've been given a fresh start. God's not giving up. Judgment has been withheld. Let's pray.